Galen Maxwell, motion for a new trial denied. This was kind of a big issue. Juror number 50, remember, came in and answered one of those questions wrong. He was supposed to write yes because he had a background of some type of abuse, and that was very relevant in the Galen Maxwell saga. And so because he marked no, Galen Maxwell's defense team said, that's not fair. This is a violation of her right to a fair trial through a fair and impartial jury. And now she deserves a new trial. But Judge Nathan, as you can see from the Southern District of New York, came out on April 1st. And it's not an April Fool's joke. You see here, there's an opinion and an order as to Galen Maxwell. We're going to go through it in depth. It is a 40-page order. We're going to learn exactly what the judge says here and why she's justifying no new trial for Galen Maxwell because juror number 50, she says, well, wasn't that big of a deal. So we'll go through there. Now, I want to also point out that on April 4th, just a couple days after, we see some sealed documents being filed immediately after the opinion and order came out. So we don't know what those are yet, but we're going to break this down. Is this the end of the Galen Maxwell saga or is she going to appeal this stuff until the end of the world? Probably. But before we dig into it, let's start off with the header. This is the very first page. And let's take a look at what we've got here. So filed April 1st, it is 40 pages electronically filed by the judge, U.S. District Court, Southern District of New York, United States of America versus Galen Maxwell. Now, remember, we spent a lot of time. We mind mapped this whole trial. We followed this saga from beginning to end. And Galen Maxwell was ultimately convicted of not all, but several of the charges upon which she was indicted. And so she's got several different appending criminal charges, predominantly for perjury, coming up later in the year. But she's already been tried. She's already been convicted, but she has not been sentenced yet. So we don't know how much time she's going to get in prison yet. Now that's coming up later, but this is all sort of uh, happening before we even get there. Right after the verdict came out, we had this problem with Juror 50. Maxwell's defense team says, we've got to redo this whole thing. And they filed a motion for a new trial. Prosecution responded and said, no, we don't need a new trial. None of this is consequential at all. So let's just keep the verdict as it stands. We're very happy with it. And so let's just leave it lie. This is finally now Judge Nathan's ruling. Listen to both sides. Gave it a lot of thought. Here it is. We've got 40 pages of explanation. We're not going to go through all 40 pages. But I synthesize some of the best parts of it. And here you can see, if you're a defense attorney, if you're Galen Maxwell, if you're on her defense team and you get this order coming into your desk, you read this first sentence and you know it's not good. It says, Judge Allison Nathan, circuit judge, sitting by designation, says, central to our system of justice is a defendant's right to have guilt adjudged by a lay jury of one's peers. <clears throat> that means you basically lost, right? Because she's going to spend the next 40 pages explaining how they can just trample all over that right to a lay jury, in my humble opinion. Now, I'm a defense attorney, so you can understand that as I'm reading this, I'm looking through this as a lens of, and what if this was not Galen Maxwell? What if this was just some other regular defendant who doesn't have multi-million dollar defense teams, who can't appeal this thing to the end of the world? What if this was somebody else, like maybe your son or your daughter or somebody who is charged with a, a crime like this, convicted. And then we learn that a juror who was on that jury panel, who was in the process of convicting your loved one, was actually sort of not supposed to be there, kind of. You know, kind of had a past that maybe would have been inquired about had we known about it. And that person got onto the jury regardless. So now you start to say, okay, look, Glenn Maxwell, yes, 
Nobody has anything nice to say about her or anybody else that she's been involved with over the years. But this is bigger than just this one case. We're talking about precedent and legal principles that are supposed to be about justice and sort of spread throughout the rest of the country and touch all of our lives potentially. And so I'm not somebody who's in favor of bending those rules just because it's Galen Maxwell on this case, just because maybe we all want to see her sort of, you know, get what's coming to her. Certainly don't want to do so at the expense of justice. And so when I start to see a judge come out and say, central to our system of justice is the defendant's right to have guilt adjudged by a lay jury, you just know the next sentence or the next 40 pages are going to be about why in this case, that's not a relevant conversation to be having. Says here, Judge Allison Nathan continues, writes, citizens give their time and attention to this critical role in the administration of justice and judicial officers are charged with the implementation of this constitutional right. So she goes on, we're going to see here, it says high or low profile cases, a jury must be able to deliberate fully and frankly in order to reach a unanimous verdict. It requires a lot of investment for all of these reasons, she writes, a verdict may be set aside only in the most extraordinary of circumstances. And you go, oh, darn it. If you're a defendant, a defense attorney, because that means that unless it's an extraordinary circumstance, this guilty verdict is going to stand. She continues. She says, listen, before the court is the defendant's motion for a new trial under the rules. Maxwell and her team says that the jury being uh, this, the juror, juror number 50, who said that he was not abused. Turns out he was abused. Turns out that part of that abuse was used in the deliberation. He communicated to the other jurors. Well, I can explain why her memory has spottiness to it. Well, because when I was abused like this, my memory was also spotty. And so it was very influential and persuasive in the deliberations. Maxwell's defense team is saying, yeah, you know, this kind of violated her Sixth Amendment rights. Bearing on these principles in mind, now you see the court is saying, look, I know it's kind of a, this was kind of a problem, in fact. Good to admit that. I'll admit it here. But we're going to conduct an uncommon post-trial hearing. And you note this word, it's uncommon. So the judge is saying, you know, I've already worked, sort of, sort of I've, I've already tried to remedy this thing. You know, I've already sort of bent the rules a little bit. We don't normally do these post-trial hearings, but in this case, we, we did it. And we went through it. it. says, although uncommon, it was necessary because of the incontrovertible evidence, like proof, that Juror 50 didn't respond accurately when he answered the questions. At the hearing, the court questioned him under oath, under penalty of perjury, turns out wasn't true. Court asked about whether his answers were false, why he gave those answers, and how he would have responded if he would have been more truthful or more accurate, shall we say. This inquiry was limited, was limited by the rules of evidence and the rule embodies blah, blah, blah. Now, the question, of course, is becoming sort of a diving into, was this deliberate? Was this intentional? Did juror number 50 you know, lie to get on the jury or did he make a mistake? And as a consequence of that mistake, get on the jury, we'll see. Judge writes, based on the hearing record, the question before the court or whether juror 50 failed to answer honestly a material question and whether if he had provided a correct response, he would have been stricken for cause. So did he fail to answer honestly, number one? And if he did, or, or didn't, if he actually had been honest at the, at the outset, would the court have gotten rid of him? They go through, they give us some controlling law. Now, we spent a lot of time, there's about 40 pages in total, as I mentioned. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to fast forward. And so when you see sort of breaks like this in the trial uh, order here, or the court order, 
that means we're fast forwarding a little bit. So here it says controlling law is clear. The question is not whether Maxwell would have chosen to exercise one of her peremptory strikes. So it wasn't whether Maxwell could have pulled her card out and said, veto that juror. That's not what we're asking about. We're asking whether the court would have struck him for cause due to some sort of bias. In other words, Maxwell doesn't have a say in this. The court is saying, based on the issues that we found to be problematic from juror number 50, I would have or would not have stricken him for cause. That's the question. Not whether Galen Maxwell would have used her peremptories, which is a different type of strike. So when you go through a criminal trial, both sides will typically get peremptory strikes. So you can just, I just don't like that person, strike that person. And the court really doesn't have much say about it. In this case, the, the, the court is making a distinction and saying, we're not talking about those peremptories. Maxwell can say, I would have get, gotten rid of that person all day long. And that is probably very well true, but that's not the threshold issue. It's really about whether the court would have found there was enough cause to get rid of juror 50. The court then says, based on this new interpretation and in the order they explain, you know, where this all comes from and the precedent behind it, says the court concludes the defendant has failed. So in other words, Maxwell has failed to satisfy the demanding requirements of the law. And the court here now finds that juror number 50 testified credibly at that very uncommon hearing. Many reasons for that. And the judge goes through them, says, look, he appeared to testify frankly and honestly. Even when he gave answers that were embarrassing to him, he was honest about it. He was testifying truthfully in the face of questions. His tone, his demeanor, his responsiveness gave no indication of false testimony. And I actually agree with that. I mean, we listened here many times to juror number 50 and that Daily Mail, I think that interview that he gave with the Daily Mail, where you can see his face just turned red. I mean, instantly, as soon as she she, she says, um, uh, it's a question 48. Yeah, I mean, they ask you about, it. oh no, they don't ask you that in the questionnaire. She says, yeah, they do there, buddy boy. It's a trial that involves that issue. There's like six questions about it. You didn't see any of that. And you can just see him sort of melt. You know, he recognizes, uh-oh, I'm in big trouble here. So I think that there was some genuineness to that. I also think that there was probably a lot of uh, <clears throat> desire to be on the jury. Right? I think he sort of saw this case and had a feeling about it a certain way and flew through the questionnaire. And so now we talk about, was that deliberate? Was that negligent? Was it sort of grossly negligent? Does any of that matter? What's the threshold? This is what the court is trying to tease out. The court thus credits his testimony that he was distracted Oh, as he filled out the questionnaire and he skimmed way too fast. Mm. So he just misunderstood some of the questions. Pretty important questions there. Some might say the most important questions there. <laughs> he just got over it. And when the judge says his tone, his demeanor, his responsiveness was all valid. All right, I don't really disagree with that. Assuming mistakenly, that he would not be one of the 12 jurors selected from hundreds. He just rushed through the questionnaire. I wasn't going to get on there anyways. It was an innocent mistake. That's why we got inaccurate answers. Juror 50's lack of attention and care in responding to every question is regrettable, the judge says. Yeah, you're telling me, especially if you're Glenn Maxwell. You're going, yeah, that's pretty regrettable because this fella was out there elbowing the other jurors. Hey, this is how it works if you're the victim of this type of stuff. Judge Nathan, though, is very confident that the failure to disclose was not deliberate. Now, we're talking about different prongs and bias and whether it was deliberate or not deliberate. The court further finds that, fast forwarding, that juror 50 was not biased 
and would not have been stricken for cause even if he had answered the questions accurately. So remember, sort of two prongs here. Was it deliberate? Was it not deliberate? Was it intentionally sort of a lie? Was it an accident? Regardless, that's prong one. You got to get past that first prong in order to get to prong number two. And if you satisfy both prongs, bing, bang, boom, Galen Maxwell gets a new trial. And so Judge Allison Nathan is going through and saying, well, you know, as to prong number one, not real sure about this, sort of deliberate, not deliberate, whatever. We'll, we'll, let's set that aside for now. Okay, we're just gonna, we're gonna have a long conversation about that. We're gonna move that aside for now. But let's move on to prong number two. Here, the court wouldn't have stricken him for cause, even if he had answered it honestly at the first go round. Here's why. The judge says at the hearing, the court asked juror 50 the same set of questions that it asked of all prospective jurors who had indicated prior experience with that type of abuse. These questions are typical of how trial court judges seek and assess potential bias and determine based on their response whether they should be struck for cause. So what the judge is talking about here is in fact very common. You'll have a situation uh, take a DUI case, for example, where uh, you have a defendant, you're sitting there and the judge is asking a bunch of jurors, uh, does anybody know this person? Oh, no, nobody does. Uh, has anybody here uh, been impacted by a DUI? Somebody raises their hand and they said, uh, yeah, I was charged with a DUI. And the judge said, oh, well, maybe he's upset at the law. Maybe that person uh, sort of has some sympathy for somebody else being charged with DUI. So a prosecutor might take a look at that person and say, well, maybe they can't be fair and impartial. Maybe they're going to be mad at the government and they're going to say that they got screwed on their DUI. And so they're going to have to go and uh, maybe be biased towards the defendant and give him a benefit of the doubt, right? Prosecutors might get upset about that. Conversely, you may have defense attorneys who are a judge asked the question, has anybody here been impacted by a DUI? And you have somebody who says, well, actually, yeah, my father was killed by a drunk driver. And you go, whoa. So that person, you might say, has a little bit of potential to be biased or have a little bit of a too strong of an emotional connection with the underlying case so that they may be a little bit too prejudiced. And so what does the judge say? They say, well, all right, well, uh, the, the defense is going to obviously want to strike that person or get the judge to strike them for cause if the defense doesn't have a peremptory. And so uh, they may ask a bunch of questions about how it makes them feel and get them riled up. The prosecutor might say, well, how long ago was that? Oh, 15 years ago. And uh, you're not upset about it. And you don't think about it often. And all right. And you can still be fair and impartial. And then the judge will ask the final set of questions on top. Okay. So even though your father was killed in a DUI accident, you are somebody who can set all of that aside. Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Uh, and you're not going to get it. No, no. Okay. You promise. Yes. For the 30th time judge. Okay. All right. Counselor. She says she can be fair and impartial. And so I'm not going to strike this juror for cause. I'm going to let this person on. So that's the process that Judge Allison Nathan is talking about here, saying that, you know, I kind of went through this with everybody. And even though we didn't know juror number 50 was a person who falls within this bucket, the, the juror didn't sort of raise his hand and say, um, well, I can no longer be fair and impartial. She writes, this is so because the key question is not simply whether an individual had similar experiences, but whether they can serve fairly and impartially. Okay. It's not about what happened to that person. It's about whether they can set all of that aside. We all have our own experiences. We all carry those around with us everywhere we go. And so, you know, you're, you're going to have situations where you've got people who bring in some of their external experiences into a trial and you can't just exclude everybody. The question judge Nathan writes, can they be fair and impartial? Juror 50 
throughout the entire line of questioning, never raised his hand and said, no, I can't do that. So she continues, says, the court has presided over a murder trial in which a juror who had a family member murdered was not struck for cause. And you start to ask yourself, yeah, but they knew about that person and you could have asked a bunch of follow-up questions, presumably. Presumably this came up during Voidir, where juror 50, his question did not come up during Voidir because he didn't fill up the box correctly. Presumably in this murder trial, the family member who, who was murdered was not, was both sides were aware of this. And so they got to ask questions about it. And maybe the court didn't strike that person because they really could be fair and impartial. Whereas a, that, that line of questioning was not even possible with juror 50. Nobody got to ask him about any of these things to make that determination. In this case, we don't know if judge Nathan went to this murder trial juror and said, how long ago was it? And did you know a further inquiry to make sure that person was in fact fair and impartial. We couldn't get any of that with juror 50. So she writes, so too victims of fraud serve faithfully in fraud trials and individuals who've been discriminated against serve in discrimination trials. And so in this type of case where there's these types of crimes, they can also be fair. Juror 50's response at the hearing to the questions regarding his ability to be fair and impartial, even in light of his past experiences, established that he too could also be fair and impartial. Thus, Judge Nathan writes, the court would not have struck juror 50 if he had provided accurate responses to the questions. So even if he had done it right at the first time and Galen Maxwell's lawyers are screaming from the rooftops, he's got a prior history of this. Judge Nathan would have said, just like she did to everybody else, can you be fair and impartial? And he would have said, oh, of course I can. And she would have said, okay, I believe you. Come on in and sit down on this jury. So the defendant's motion for a new trial pursuant to their motion is denied. Now we're going to break this down just a little bit further. So we talked about those two prongs. Here's a little bit more detail on where those prongs come from. You see the parties agree to a defendant's rule 33 motion. They're talking about voidir. This is a little bit more in the weeds for, for those of you who are interested in it, but McDonough, this is a Supreme court case that came out in 1984. So the judge now, the reason why I want to spend some time on this is because I think that this, if there's a basis for an appeal, it's going to come out in something like this. Here, they're talking about McDonough. Now, Judge Nathan is breaking this down, sitting on the Second Circuit, saying in McDonough, the Supreme Court held that in order to obtain a new trial on the basis of juror non-disclosure, a party must first demonstrate that they answered, failed to answer honestly a material question and that they could have then been challenged for cause. You see, this is coming from McDonough. And then they're also referencing the Second Circuit case. The parties now dispute this. This is where you start to get a, a sort of interpretation of the law from Judge Nathan. Remember that we were detailing and talking about those two prongs. Those two prongs are what Judge Nathan is sort of interpreting. She's saying, I'm deciding what these two prongs are, and uh, this is how I'm going to interpret this all according to these rules. But you're seeing here in this little uh, sort of extrapolation of the underlying issue, the parties dispute whether the first prong of McDonough requires deliberate juror misconduct. So the prosecution is going to say it has to be deliberate, right? Because that's sort of the higher standard. Anything that is not deliberate then is not actionable. If it's just a mistake, you don't get a new trial. It has to be deliberate. Like you have to get a juror on there who's like, I'm going to mess this trial up. So that's a higher standard for them to reach here. 
the prosecution is saying it has to be a real high standard and juror 50 didn't hit that standard. Galen Maxwell, by contrast, is saying that doesn't need to be that standard at all. It doesn't have to be intentional. It's about a fair and impartial trial with a fair and impartial jury. It doesn't matter whether it was deliberate or not. If they wreck the, the fairness or the impartiality of the trial, it doesn't matter whether it was deliberate or not. So we're, we're arguing about these different standards. Now, the government here is relying on second circuit precedent like this case says that a deliberate falsehood is required, meaning it's a much higher standard. In contrast, Galen Maxwell and her defense are saying that McDonough does not require deliberateness and that an inadvertent false statement satisfies the first prong. The court does not resolve this legal dispute because as explained in below, Regardless of which approach is the correct one, the court finds that the false answers were not deliberate and the second prong is not satisfied. So there's sort of a, an unresolved question of the law here as for prong number one. Under the second prong now, the court says the court must determine if it would have granted for the hypothetical challenge for cause. This is where the court is hanging their hat. Judge Nathan is saying on this, this is the one where I would have found no, I would not have granted this. And this is going to be part of the basis of the appeal to the higher court. McDonough, prong two, assuming without deciding jurors 50s inadvertent response, she's saying Maxwell has not established that the court would have excused juror 50 for cause, even if he had been honest. At the hearing, court asked juror 50 the same questions everybody else. Juror 50 was credible in their responses, answered them under oath, would not have struck him for cause if he had been accurate. They say, moreover, his testimony was corroborated by his question, his answers during void dear. He said he absolutely could base this Listen to this case and judge the case based on the evidence. He had no doubt in his ability to be fair to both sides. No reason to think otherwise. So then we start to see a conclusion from the court. In sum, the court concludes that the evidence in the record does not support the finding that juror 50 was biased. And there's a lot of analysis there about inferred bias and actual bias. And the judge goes through every single one of them and says, nope, 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 nope. Juror 50's sworn testimony did not reveal that he was actual, actually partial you know, that he had one bias one way or the other, no implied bias, no inferred bias. He was not a victim nor somebody who was involved in the underlying crimes, doesn't have a relationship with anybody and consistent with other jurors who answered yes to question 48, the court would not have granted a four cause challenge on the basis of his history of abuse. Juror 50 was distracted and this does not reveal any bias during Voidir or the trial prong two then is not satisfied. Conclusion comes out from Allison Nathan. For the reasons Juror 50 testified credibly, his failure to disclose was highly, highly unfortunate, but not deliberate. Therefore, no bias found that Juror 50 harbored toward Galen. He was fair, he was impartial, and the new requirements under McDonough not satisfied. Therefore, it is denied. So we get some additional court dates scheduled. We see here, we've got time excluded on count seven and eight. Those are the perjury charges. We've got the court finding the ends of justice now serve that. So Galen Maxwell is going to be waiving a bunch of time. That, that time is not going to count sort of against the government in their prosecution. So they're going to waive some of her rights for a speedy trial. The defendant consents to this exclusion. The court will rule on the post and the remaining post verdict motions in due course. Sentencing is now scheduled for June 28th. 
2022. So a big ruling from Judge Allison Nathan. I'm not sure, you know, like I've said, I've always speculated that this thing is not going to stick. Remember what happened when Bill Cosby went away? Guess what? He's a free man these days. Same thing tends to happen with these types of cases. It all sort of gets a lot of attention. And then we fast forward two years. Oh, weird. Galen Maxwell's back on an island somewhere with a somebody who looks a lot like Jeffrey Epstein. So we'll see. We'll continue to follow this one along. I hope you join us on that journey. I would love it if you subscribe before you got out of here, because I look forward to seeing you on the next.